Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesterfield Baptist Church. So we've got one more week of uh, some audio issues. So this episode will be a little spotty, but I think next week we've got it ironed out. So next week we should be good. We'll be preaching out of Mark chapter 2 this morning, and the title of the message is How to Get Your Friends to Jesus. Please enjoy. Mark chapter 2. If you have your places in the Bible one last time, I'm going to ask you to stand respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse number 12. The Bible says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carrying for, carried by four men. Being unable to get him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had dug up, dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And immediately he picked up the pallet, went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And the title of the message this morning is Getting Your Friends to Jesus. Getting Your Friends to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for all that you've done for us. Dear, dear Lord, I pray that you would be with us today as we look at the Scripture, Lord, and as we look at this account, this amazing story of you and the Word of God. May we glean from it, Lord, principles that can strengthen our Christian life and that can allow us to get our friends and loved ones to you. Be with our service this morning. Give us a great day in the house of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. D.L. Moody used to tell this story about this man who was going to join the army and is going to go fight in the Mexican War. And his mom said, you cannot join the army, you cannot go fight in this war until you become a Christian. And the son said, no mom, I'm not going to become a Christian. I'm not, he kept refusing her, I'm not going to become a Christian. In fact, he said, I tell you what mom, once I get out of the war and once I get home, then I'll be a Christian. Well, it just uh, right before he was about to deploy and go to fight in the Mexican War, the mom came to him and gave him a Bible. 
In this Bible was marked many passages that the son admitted that he never read. Also given to him was a pocket watch. And what the mom said to this son is, she said, listen, every time you open this pocket watch and you look at this time and you see that the time strikes 12 o'clock, day or night, I want you to know that when this clock says 12 o'clock, I will be praying for you. Son put the pocket watch and the Bible in his, in his pack, in his pants, and he went off to fight in the war. He never looked at them again until about four months later. Four months later, he's marching and he reaches in his pocket to get something. And in his pocket, he pulls out that watch that he has not opened in four months. He pops that watch open and he realizes that the moment that he looks at the watch is 12 o'clock. He knows that his mom is on his knee, on her knees, praying for his soul at that very moment. And the Holy Spirit of God convicts him. And he asks his commanding officer if he can go pray behind a tree. And the commanding officer gave him permission. And that man went and he knelt behind that tree and he prayed. And he asked Jesus to be his Savior. He became a Christian. And when he got home, he told his mom this story. And he said, Mom... Because you were praying for me. It's because you were praying for me. The Lord convicted me and I accepted Christ. Do you know anybody that needs Jesus? In fact, really, the question should be asked, do you know anybody that doesn't need Jesus? Because we all need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. But there are some people who are not aware of their need. Or even if they are aware of their need, they're not capable to getting to Jesus by themselves. Just to give you a little review of where we're at in the Word of God, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus spent a very busy day at Capernaum doing several things. After he got done at Capernaum, he went through a preaching tour of the cities of Galilee and preached in all of Galilee and did many miracles and healed many people and cast out a demon. And then he comes back to the fishing town of Capernaum on the shore of, on the, shore of the Sea of Galilee which just also happened to be Peter's hometown. He comes back here and it's at this point in Jesus' ministry that he's attracting attention everywhere he goes. Because in Mark 1.28, it tells us that he rescued a demon-possessed man and after that his fame spread throughout the land. So it was very difficult for Jesus to go anywhere without being mobbed by a crowd at this time but there are four friends that said we got to get our friend to Jesus somehow some way I don't know how I don't know what we're gonna have to do but we've got to make it happen we got to find a way to get our friend to Jesus and that's what these four friends had in common, is they had a friend who needed Jesus. And what I have for you today, I'm not going to be very long. I've got four features of Jesus that help us bring our friends and loved ones to Christ. Point number one, the presence of Jesus. He was in the house. Underneath the presence of Jesus, we're going to talk about the reality of his presence. The reality of his presence. 
were mobbing Jesus that Jesus actually began to avoid the streets because on the streets it just became a healing campaign. Jesus couldn't go anywhere without being asked to heal someone. He couldn't go anywhere without being asked to cast a demon out of someone. And so it just became a healing campaign and it was hindering Jesus from doing what he came there to do. And what he came there to do was to preach. His ministry was to preach, and the book of Mark focuses on the preaching ministry of Jesus. So Jesus was preaching in the house. That's that's what he was doing. But the thing about it is, is, is once you understand who Jesus really is, you understand that Jesus isn't just in the house. Let me explain. This is a church. Now, we do understand that this building really isn't the church. We, the people, are the church. We are the church. But this church building is called, in today's vernacular, in today's vocabulary, it's called a church. Back in the early days, this used to be called the building that housed the church at Jesbro. But we, in today's understanding, we call this building a church. This is a place that we have set apart, that we have set aside, that we have consecrated, that we have dedicated to worshiping Christ. We come here to worship Jesus. We come here to worship God. This is what we set this place apart. So let me tell you something. If you want to get your friends to Jesus, a very good thing for you to do is get them to come to church. You invite them to church, they come here, they will get the word of God preached at them, they will get a gospel message, they will get Jesus presented to them. But I like to tell you that that is not a requirement. It's not a requirement that you bring them to Jesus because you can just as easily bring Jesus to them. Because Jesus isn't relegated to these four walls. That's not who Jesus is. You understand that Jesus is God and Jesus is omnipresent and there is no place where he is not. So while getting your friends to come here is a good thing, if they won't come here, it's not the end because you can bring Jesus to them. Because Jesus is where they are at. But I want you to think about what that means. Not only what that means for the lost is Jesus is anywhere they're at and they can get Jesus anywhere. What does that mean for the saved? What does that mean for the Christian? What that means for the Christian is that Jesus watches every TV show that you watch. Jesus listens to every word you allow yourself to hear. Jesus goes everywhere with you that you go. He listens to everything. He knows your deeds. He knows your thoughts. He knows your words. He knows your heart. And when you don't care about that fact, you lack something called the fear of the Lord. You do not fear God if you do not care about the fact that Jesus goes where you go, does what you do, and sees what you see. You don't care about that fact, you do not have the fear of the Lord. Next, I want you to see the recognition of his presence. The recognition of his presence, verse 1. And it was noise that he was in the house. So not only was Jesus in the house, but everybody knew that Jesus was in the house. 
There's a preacher named G. Campbell Morgan, and he had just moved in a new house. He had just moved in this house, and he was so proud of his house, and he invited his dad to come to his house. Dad, I want you to come see my new house. So the dad came in the house, and he took him on a tour. We all like taking the tours of the new house. We all like to do that. So he took him on a tour through the house, and he showed him all the finishing home touches that his wife had put in every room and how he had the furniture arranged and how he had everything organized. And then when he got done with the tour, he asked his dad, what did you think? He imagined his dad would be proud of the house or tell him how much he enjoyed it. But instead, his dad said, I suppose it's all right. And G. Campbell Morgan looked at his dad kind of sideways and said, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's nothing in any room to indicate that Jesus lives here. There's nothing. So it was after at that point, G. Campbell Morgan decided that in every room in his house would be a scripture verse, would be a plaque, would be something to show that a Christian lives in this house. Now, I'm not telling you to go out, go to Walmart and start buying scripture verses and put in your room, that, in every room in your house. That's, that's not the point of the story. But what I am asking is, does, does, do people see Jesus in you? You know Jesus is there, but do other people know that Jesus is there? Do people see the presence of Jesus in you? Because I'm telling you today, Christian, if you want to bring your friends to Christ, if you want to bring your loved ones to Christ, they have to be able to see Jesus in you. They have to recognize his presence. It's not enough that the presence is there. The presence has to be recognized. Then after the recognition of his presence, we have the result of his presence. Verse 2, and many were gathered together. Jesus said in the scripture, and if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. See, it's the presence of Jesus that makes any person or place appealing. If you go into the desert, you're going to see a lot of bushes. There's a lot of bushes up in the desert, man. But Moses was attracted to just one because the presence of God was in that bush. Man, if you go to Israel, the land of Israel is littered with whales. There are whales covering the land of Israel. But there is only one well that tourists flock to every year. And it's Jacob's well. Because that is where the presence of Jesus gave a wicked woman living water. There are many tombs in the land of Israel. There are tombs all over the place. But there's one tomb in particular that people flock to every day, every year. It's the empty tomb that could not contain the presence of Jesus. Let me tell you something. You can go to a church service in a musty basement with metal, rusty, 
metal chairs that creak when you sit on them, that scrape against the concrete floor, and the piano can be the, the piano can be so out of tune and the keys can stick, it sounds like a piano up in an old western saloon. But if Jesus is high and lifted up there, you'll be tremendously, tremendously blessed and tremendously touched. At the same token, you can go to a big, ornate cathedral with stained glass windows and pipe organs, and if Jesus isn't honored there, the spirit is dead. Because it's not about stained glass windows, and it's not about the money in the building. It's not about the pipe organs. It's not about the, the regal robes on the priests. That's not what it's about. Is Jesus Christ being lifted up? Is he being glorified? Is he being honored? And I'm telling you, when you recognize the presence of Christ, and you honor Christ, the results are miraculous things begin to happen. Number two this morning, I want to show you the priority of Jesus. These men tore the roof off the place quite literally. You see, the roof was accessible most of the time through a stairwell on the outside. And the roofs were made of thatch or dirt or tile laid over beams. And I want you to know this morning, they didn't just simply uncover the roof. They had to break the roof up. They had to tear it apart. And I can guarantee you that lowering that man down in there was a lot easier than pulling him back up. They had no intention of pulling him back up because they knew he was going to walk out of there because they believed it. But I want to show you something this morning. They did all that. They broke the roof apart. They lowered him down in there. And then the first thing Jesus said was, get up and walk. No. That's not what he said first. What did he say first? Thy sins be forgiven. You see, that's what caused all the commotion there that day. He said, thy sins be forgiven. I want to show you some things about the priority of Jesus. First, I want to show you that Jesus emphasizes the spiritual over the physical. Jesus emphasizes the spiritual over the physical. How many people today, they will not allow you to minister to their spiritual need until you meet their physical need? People today want a fat bank account. They don't, want, they don't want you to teach them about contentment. People today, they want, they want temporal happiness and could care less about eternal joy. They want the Jesus that clothes the lilies and feed the ravens, but they don't want the Jesus that talks about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's not the Jesus that they want they want a pastor who is a self-help life coach guru, but they don't want a leather-lung preacher that'll stand up and preach the whole counsel of God whether you like it or not. That's not what they want. Jesus cared more about the spiritual condition of this man than he ever cared about his physical condition. I also want to show you this morning that Jesus emphasizes the individual over the multitude. Man, there were so many people stuffed in that house. 
man, it was, they, were, they were stuffed in there, and they were all there to hear him. And let me tell you something, some preachers and evangelists, they won't even get out of their Lincoln Town car and go into a church building if it ain't full. If it ain't standing room only, if people aren't lying the walls, if metal chairs from the fellowship hall aren't in the aisles, the preacher won't even go and preach in that church. Let me tell you something, Jesus turned away from that crowd so quick. He turned away from that crowd quick, fast, and in a hurry. He turned away from them in an instant, in a heartbeat. Why? Because one person had a need. One person. Jesus didn't care about the crowd. He cared about the one. There was a revival in Samaria. Man, people were getting saved. Things were happening. The church was being filled. Philip was there preaching. It was a great revival. And the Spirit came to Philip and said, I want you to go to the desert. Why? Because there's one man there. He's going to be reading Isaiah 53, and he's not going to be able to understand it. And if you're there, you can lead him to Christ. He left the crowd. And he went to the one. He went to the one. Jesus talks about the 99, the shepherd who had the 99 sheep, and he left the 99 sheep to go to the one. And a person who does not turn their back on the crowd because of the acclaim they get, and they do not turn their back on the crowd because of the popularity they get, or the recognition they get, or the preeminence they get, because they love it so much, if they don't turn away from that to minister to the one, they do not emulate Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus did. Number three, Jesus emphasized the lost over the saved. Mark 2.17, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, if there's anything that the story of the prodigal son teaches us, is that the priority is given to the lost son who comes back to the father, and not to the faithful son who stayed. Priority is given to the one who is lost not the one who is saved. That's where Jesus' priority is. Number three this morning, I want to show you the power of Jesus. And under that, I want to tell you about the availability, the availability of his power. You see, the scribes actually used right logic here. They said, who can forgive God, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they correctly believed that only God could forgive sins. And you know what? They were right. That's not a wrong assumption. Also, I want you to notice that they weren't wrong for questioning this new teacher. Hey, there's nothing wrong with asking questions, man. Man, you, you get into a church and a pastor gets up and says, you're not allowed to ask questions. You run as fast as you can because you're in a cult. You're in a cult. There is nothing wrong with asking questions. But you know where the problem came in? You know where their error was? Their error was that they did not recognize who Jesus was. They did not recognize that he was God the Son who had the authority to forgive sins. 
You see, Jesus did not disagree with the principle that God alone can forgive sins. In fact, he was about to demonstrate that to them. But I want to take just a second. I want to talk about this principle about forgiveness for just a second. Because there are people, saved, born-again Christians, who struggle with forgiveness. Struggle with forgiveness. And they say things like, I know God forgave me, but I could never forgive myself. Let me tell you something. You were never intended to forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. You you, you can't do that. So the real issue is believing and accepting his forgiveness because his forgiveness is infinite. His forgiveness is so deep you can't touch the bottom. His forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. And when you genuinely accept the reality of his great forgiveness, it will overwhelm your feelings about yourself. And that's when your guilt goes away. You've got to accept it, though. It has to be your decision. Jesus had the ability to forgive that man's sin. Jesus was able to heal him and meet his need. And he's able to meet the need of any person in the world. Next, I want to talk to you about the accessibility of his power. The accessibility of his power. Verse 5. When he saw their faith. Now, when he says faith there, I don't think he's just referring to the four friends' faith. I think he's also referring to the faith of the the, the sick man on the bed. He, He saw their faith. So they had faith that could be seen. They had faith that could be seen. Can that be said of us? Can others see our faith? If you ever noticed a liberal politician who claims to be a Christian, here's what they say about their faith. Oh, yes, I have faith, but it's a personal faith. It's a personal faith that I don't push on other people. Is faith meant to be personal or is faith meant to be public? Is faith meant to be hoarded? Or is faith meant to be shared? Is faith meant to be bottled up? Or is faith meant to be on display? You see, true faith requires action. Faith without works is dead faith. It's dead faith. These guys, they they interrupted a public meeting They damaged a person's home. They caused quite a stir. They caused quite a a commotion here. And it seems to me like their faith caused waves. Faith that causes waves. They didn't throw a pebble in the pond. They threw a cinder block in the pond. And you know us guys, we're all about throwing stuff in water. The bigger thing we can pick up and pitch in water, I mean, that's, you know, that's our pastime as guys. You know, that's what we do, okay? But, man, the bigger thing, the more waves you can make throwing it in the pond, the better. 
these guys, they threw a boulder in that pond. They made waves. They, they, they cut in front of the line. They, they, they didn't care how they would be looked at. They didn't care if people didn't like them. They had to get to Jesus. That's the kind of faith that I have to access to God's power, that accesses God's power. God's power is available to everybody, but it's only accessible to those who believe in him and who take action. Then I want to show you the authentication of power. Let's go back to Scripture, and I want to read verses 8 through 11 again. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, let's stop there. Son of Man is a messianic title. You always wonder why did he call himself that. The Jews knew what that meant. It was a messianic title. He didn't call himself the king because they would have looked at that as, I'm here to defeat the Romans. He called himself the Son of Man. That's a messianic title. That ye may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. This is a very stunning moment where the scribes realize that Jesus can read their mind. Okay? That enough, that alone should have been enough to convince them that he was God. But I also want you to understand another thing that the Jews believed wrongly. The Jews in Jesus' time believed wrongly that physical ailments had to do with a direct sin that the reason you're sick is because you sinned and made God angry. That's why. The reason why you're blind, or, and if you're blind for birth, it was your parents' sin. But they genuinely believe that, and wrongly so, that a physical ailment was a result of direct sin. Okay? They believe that. If someone's sick, it's because God's angry at them. So Jesus asks him a question, which is easier, to forgive someone or to heal someone? He knows they're linked. He thinks the Jews believe they're linked, so he's going to address that. So let's, let's answer the question today that Jesus asks in Scripture, which is easier? Which is easier, to heal someone or to forgive someone? Well, if you're a human, they're both impossible. If you're a human being... They're both impossible. Man can't do them. But if you're God, both are easy. One is no harder than the other. Healing someone is no much harder than forgiving someone if you're God. If you're God, you have the power to do both. And this was the point Jesus was trying to make. If I have the power to heal him, then I also have the power to forgive him because I am God. This is the point he was trying to make. If Jesus has the power to heal, he also has the power to forgive. But there's a problem here. Forgiving someone is invisible. 
You can't see that. But healing someone, oh, instantly verifiable. I can instantly see the results of that. Could you imagine if Jesus would have failed? Man, people would have slowly got up and walked out of the building and left him in there all by himself. But you see, Jesus has linked these two now. He's saying, look, if I'm God, I can heal him and I can forgive him just as easily. And now Jesus is about to put himself to the test. And Jesus looks at this man and says, take up your bed and go to your house. And could you imagine the intensity of that scene at that moment? You had the scribes. They're very tense. Because Jesus has challenged them. And Jesus is saying, now I'm going to demonstrate that I am the Son of God. The paralyzed man, he's tense because he's thinking, man, can Jesus really heal me? The four men, they're tensed up because they're like, man, if this doesn't work, there's a good chance we might get stoned. Man, the crowd is probably tense and the crowd is so silent you could probably hear a pin drop. And the only one that wasn't tense in the house was Jesus because he knew the outcome. Because he said those words and immediately, immediately, the guy rose up and he walked. Why? Because Jesus when he healed the man, he was proving to the crowd that I not only fixed him on the outside, I also fixed him on the inside. Jesus did that. Look, yes, Jesus can heal you. Jesus can heal you. And we talked about this morning, we talked about Miss Patsy coming home from the hospital and what a miracle that was. And Jesus can heal your outside. But way more important than that, he can heal your inside. D.L. Moody was once challenged by an atheist. I want to debate you, he said to D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody said, okay, I'll debate you on one condition. And this is what D.L. Moody said to the atheist, I'll debate you, but I want you to bring me every person you can whose life has been changed by the power of atheism. I want you to bring me those who were drunkards until they became atheists and now are sober. Those whose lives were broken but have been made whole by believing in atheism. Those who have become better husbands and better fathers since turning to atheism. And needless to say, D.L. Moody did not have to debate that atheist. Because yes, Jesus can change your outside, but a thousand times more important than that, he can change your inside. And number four, the partners of Jesus. The partners of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, For we are laborers together with God. I want you to see, first of all, this morning that they were concerned. Do we have the concern for the loss that these four friends had for their lost friends? Let me tell you today, lost people sprint by us towards hell every single day. And do we ever shed a tear? Do we ever pray a prayer? Do we ever pass out a track? Are we the least bit concerned that people are dropping off into hell by in droves all around us? 
Romans 10.1, Paul said, Brethren, it's my heart's desire and prayer for them that they would be saved. Are we like Paul? Are we soul conscious? Do we have a burden for lost souls? I want you to see that Paul turned his care, he turned his concern into action because he actually prayed for his friends. He prayed for them. How long have you prayed for one of your friends to be saved? Well, I prayed for him once five years ago. I mean, you haven't prayed every day for the last five years? Sometimes that's what it takes, Christian. Constant, every single day, for weeks, for months, for years. Sometimes it could even take decades. Constant prayer. That's what Paul did. Next, I want to show you that they were convinced. They, were, they absolutely believed that Jesus could make a difference in their friend. They knew a truth. And the truth they knew is that Jesus was the only way. A new job couldn't fix it. A new attitude wasn't going to change anything. Pills weren't the answer. Alcohol wouldn't help. A change of scenery wouldn't do much. A new relationship wouldn't be a comfort. But they were absolutely, undeniably convinced that Jesus was the only way to help their friend. And you will not bring your friends to Christ unless you are just as convinced. And then number three, they were committed. No obstacle would stop them. No problem would keep them from reaching their goal. You ever ask yourself, where did they get the rope? I mean, I don't think for, I mean, I guess just my logical brain, it's how I think. Did they go to Lowe's? Did they go to Home Depot? What did they do? I mean, I'm sure stretchers like that didn't come with four lengths of rope on each corner. They had to get the rope from somewhere. But wherever they got the rope from, they got the rope because no obstacle would stand in their way from getting done what they had to do. No obstacle stop us getting our friends to Christ. There was a man named Lieutenant De Silva. Lieutenant De Silva was in the French Foreign Legion. And he was assigned to the Rwandan refugee camp. These refugee camps, unfortunately, at one point had become death camps. Death had just ravaged these Rwandan refugee camps in so that Lieutenant De Silva was put in charge of a very grave task. He had to dig the mass graves for the corpses. So he would supervise the digging of the grave and they would put the bodies in the grave and then he would supervise the bulldozer as the bulldozer covered the grave with dirt. One day the bulldozer is covering a grave and he looks out in the distance over this mass grave and he sees something moving. And so he stops the bulldozer and he goes out onto the grave and he looks and in the distance he can see a little hand waving. Lieutenant De Silva, he runs out on top of that grave, climbing over the corpses and the bodies as fast as he can. He goes out and he grabs that little hand and he pulls that little hand up out of the grave. And it was a little boy, still alive. Took this little boy back to the camp, washed him up, 
fed him. For several days, this little boy never said anything. A couple days later, he took this little boy on a Jeep ride. And it was something about being in the Jeep that just kind of helped the boy. It helped his spirit. And then the boy began to speak. He told Lieutenant De Silva about his dad, about his mom, about his brothers and sisters. Lieutenant De Silva introduced the boy to his wife, to his other kids. And he asked his wife if they could adopt that boy. And he made that boy his son. He adopted that child. Raised him. One day, my hand was reaching out in desperation through a sea of decaying humanity. And Jesus pulled me out. And he rescued me. And he forgave my sin. And he made me his son. Today, Somebody's hand is waving at you. Today, somebody's hand is waving at me. Let's bring our friends to Jesus.